All conversations and information exchanged during participation in this podcast or interaction on the Doctor.com website is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or physician medical advice or direction per se. You must always follow your medical professional's advice and direction. Nothing on these podcasts or posted on this site supplements or supersedes the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Please understand, I am not playing the role of physician in this environment per se. I'm educating. I am a licensed physician with specialty boards in American Board of Internal Medicine and American Board of Addiction Medicine. All right, I brought up measles on my last podcast, and uh, I just want to just break down a couple of things that we should be reminding everyone. Of course, children should get the two live attenuated vaccines. If your kids have had those vaccines, and they've been available since the 90s, essentially, you're fine. Uh, prior to that, 70s and 80s, you probably ought to have the immunity documented uh, with a blood test. If it, That's sort of a, you might want to talk to your doctor about that. If you were born 70s, 60s, late 50s, you really must get your immunity documented with a blood test. I personally was born in that 57 to 63 window when we didn't get adequate uh, the kind of vaccine really wasn't designed to last a lifespan, or at least it hasn't turned out that way. So I just retook the vaccine three days ago. And uh, I may even get a second one since I'm a healthcare provider. Healthcare providers are supposed to get two vaccines. And if it's any question, I'll get the vaccine. It's, it's harmless. It doesn't hurt. Obviously, pregnant women ought to be careful. People on steroids or with immune diseases, those sorts of things. Talk to your doctor. No matter what, talk to your physician. But we need to be vaccinated because... Although people can look at these outbreaks that we're having recently and say, oh, it's just five cases, just 20 cases, it's localized. Yes, an outbreak is defined by a change in the distribution of a disease in location and temporality. I mean, all of a sudden there's a change in one location over a specified period of time. could be three cases, could be five cases, could be 5,000 cases. It's the change that we jump on. That's not an epidemic. It's an outbreak. Measles is so contagious you literally, could, someone with measles can walk through the produce department or the grocery store. You could walk through a couple hours later. You will get it. You will get it if you're not properly immunized. My greatest fear is that it's going to get into the homeless population. If it does, this is going to be a massive, massive problem. Uh, and as the viral load in the community rises, even people with partial immunity will not be able to keep off this disease. So discuss with your doctor. Document your immunity. It's really not only are you responsible to you and your family, but you've got to be responsible for the rest of us. You have a responsibility to not just take care of yourself, of course, and your family and protect yourself, but by protecting yourself, you are protecting the community you live in. That's part of the responsibility of being a citizen and living in a concentrated environment we call a city or a civilization. And why we've decided we don't have that responsibility to our fellow citizen is shocking and unconscionable to me. So... Take care of business. Do what you got to do to protect yourself, your neighbor, your community, and to stay healthy. So, just and by the way, all, it's all on the CDC website, Centers for Disease Control. Consult that. There's a whole measles section there, and so you can read about what I was saying here about what what your what category you're in, and uh, whether you should go get your immunity checked or take the vaccine. Hey, this is Doctor Drew, and you are listening to This Life with Bob Ford and Doctor Drew. Here we are. Hey everybody, another episode of This Life, hashtag you live with me and Bob. Bob, not here today, so not the usual extraordinary uh, opening that we are accustomed to. 
Uh, but Bob will be back. Don't you worry. Please check out the new Opium series on the Weekly Infusion and go to other shows we have at DrDrew.com, such as uh, my very own podcast every Tuesday with intriguing guests and uh, comedians. We also have a super popular Adam and Dr. Drew show. Of course, I do that with Adam Carolla five days a week for Podcast One. And then your mom's house platform, uh, podcast and YouTube video show, The New and After Dark, because it's explicit, Dr. Drew After Dark Podcast, which has been quite popular, taking the world by storm, top-rated YouTube channel and podcast phenomenon. Proud to be hosting. I'm proud to be hosting the best and the funniest comedians on your mom's house platform. And please, oh, I can't say this. There's a T-shirt available that says, please don't prolapse your anus. If you're a your mom's house fan, you'll understand what that means. Uh, if you want to get this limited edition T-shirt, check out Dr. Drew Heather Charcoal T-shirt on MerchMethod.com slash Tom Segura. Again, that's MerchMethod.com slash Tom Segura. It's for mommies, but not for kitties. Be warned, it is intended for mature audiences. Do not listen in the carpool. It um, And if perhaps you like a daily dose of news and politics, I do a live radio show every day with co-host Leanne Tweeden on KBC 790 Midday Live Talk Show Monday through Friday. We are there 12p to 3p Pacific time on Talk Radio 790 AM. If you live in another city other than Los Angeles, tune in every day live on their website, KBC Radio or KBC.com. And uh, check out the podcast. We made it simple for you to find archive shows at drdrew.com. Next to all the podcasts we offer here with, next to all the podcasts we offer here with Playroom Pods on Podcast One and your mom's house platforms. We do appreciate your participation and listenership, and part and we like the emails. We just we love being part of this community. So thank you for being a part of it as well. Rate us five stars. Tell a friend. We are hard at work. Hashtag you live. And today's guest is David Chef. David is the author of several books, including the bestseller Beautiful Boy, which is now a movie. He also has a book called Clean, Overcoming Addiction and Ending America's Greatest Tragedy. He's a journalist, having written many publications, New York Times, Wired, Rolling Stone, conducted interviews with uh, John Lennon, Yoko Ono, Carl Sagan, Betty Friedan, David Hockney. He is also the father of a son. This is what he talked about in Beautiful Boy, both the book and the movie, who was a severe polydrug addict for 10 years. He is a passionate spokesperson and advocate for the addiction recovery community. He writes extensively about substance use disorder and its manifestations in America. Please welcome David Sheff. Good to talk to you. First of all, hi. It's so good to talk to you, and it's been a long time, and um, you know, I follow everything you do. And well, thank you. Right. Very kind. So, David, uh, we haven't spoken in a long time, and I've not spoken to you since the movie came out. Congratulations on that. Oh, thank you. Uh, that's been weird, but uh, also cool. <laughs> Seeing your life on screen and having uh, uh, what's his name? We call him Michael from uh, yeah, Steve, yeah, <laughs> Steve exactly. Carell. Michael, Steve Carell play, playing from, playing you is crazy. It, it is crazy. I have to say, the you know, I've been teased a lot about it. You know, people have made jokes about Michael Scott and you know his sort of ineptitude, and and uh, <laughs> in that we have something in common, uh, but. <laughs> Uh, otherwise, yeah, no, it's it's strange, and the only cool thing about it, or, or the you know the main cool thing about, it, I mean, the other thing is that you know the kid who plays my son Nick, yeah, Timothy Chalamet is like this. He's an amazing actor, and he's also like just gotten to be sort of the hottest thing. So we would go to events, a premiere, and walk out of the car with Timmy, and you know it would be like being with the Beatles, girls screaming, and yeah. suddenly I had all these new Twitter followers with names like you know Timothy Chalamet's hair and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> That's but hysterical. The, yeah, but the really cool part about it is that you know more people go to the movies and watch TV, and so you know I just heard from more and more and more people who saw the movie 
had, you know, because of the stigma around addiction, people often keep as you know, well, people often hide what they're going through and they think they're alone. And so they've gone to see this movie and they've seen Steve Carell play someone that they can really relate to. Um, and it has a similar experience. They felt somehow validated. They've learned that, you know, it wasn't just them that struggled so much that it really is a tough, tough, tough problem that, uh, you know, that there aren't easy solutions. And the coolest part of all is the people I've heard from who've told me that they, families have reconciled uh, and kids have written me and said, yeah, I saw the movie. I didn't even go see the movie because I even understood or cared that it was about drug addiction. Uh, I went because I wanted to see Timothy Chalamet <laughs> or whatever it was. Um, and all of a sudden I saw myself there. Wow. Uh, I've been using pain pills. Uh, I Nobody knows. I went yeah. home and I told... I sort of burst into tears, told my mom and dad, you know, they burst into tears uh, and uh, we're figuring out what to do today. I'm going to be going into some kind of treatment. And so that has been incredibly gratifying. That's great. That is great. How's your son doing, by the way? Uh, you know, miraculously, it's he's been sober for nine years. Oh, that's great. That I mean, it's great. unbelievable because, you know, there was a time we didn't think he was going to make it to uh, 21 and he just turned 36 and wow. uh, I'm, you know, I'm reminded how lucky we are yeah. uh, every single day because of all the people who I hear from, you know, and I know you hear from them as well. Who've lost their kids. Did, did the movie turn out the way you wanted or were there things that you wish had been emphasized or portrayed that we might've missed or, you know, I mean, they did a lot in two hours, you know, trying to condense 10 years of yeah. our experience, you know, my book, you know, Nick's book about, you know, writing from his own perspective. Um, and there were some things in it that, you know, were, were obviously creative license. You know, I never in the middle of the night trying to understand what Nick was feeling, uh, experiencing. I never went out and scored methamphetamine and did it myself and then started spinning office chairs around like, <laughs> like uh, Steve Carell does in the movie. Yeah. Um, but, you know, a lot of what they show, I mean, they, I, one thing that I think that he shows, and every time you look at his face is you see the anguish yeah. that is very realistic to what I felt and I know that other parents feel. Yeah. Um, there were some messages that I thought were really, you know, important that, for example, um, you know, this isn't easy. And there was, you know, all this kind of hope is followed by a lot of times Hollywood deals with addiction. Um it's, you know, it's sort of ties together with a little bow at the end. Yeah, you know, yeah. Everybody's happily ever after. Yeah. The kid goes into treatment and that's it. Um, yeah. And we all know that it's not that easy. And oftentimes, you know, there are relapses. Um, hopefully there are return to treatment after that. Uh, and they show that, you know, there was no easy answers shown. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's um, in that way, I think it's been, you know, it's been really useful. Again, people have felt, you know, I went into treatment myself or my kid did and I relapsed. And so I felt that I, um, you know, that I was a failure or that he or she was a failure. And here we show that it's really, really hard. And that part of this is a you know, chronic illness and part of the, what happens often is relapse. And so, you know, there was a lot there that I think was really useful. Yeah, John, I, hope it, I hope so. John, oh, it was excellent. John Kelly, um, who runs the program at Harvard addiction program, has some data that shows on average it takes four treatments and five years to get one year of sobriety. 
on wow, average, okay. on average. So, so for people to say, you know, it wasn't clean after the car wash, that's ridiculous. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And we don't know because I mean, I brought Nick into his first program and it, you know, it was hell to get him in there. He was on the streets. He was stealing from us. He was breaking into our home. He even stole from his little you know, brother who he adored. And I was completely, what was going on? And finally I figured out a way to get him into treatment. And it was a 28 day program. And I sort of said, Oh, you know, that was hell, but at least I'll pick him up in 28 days and <laughs> he'll be fixed and you know, he'll go off to college, which oh. is what the plan was. And, you know, 10 years later, I realized that, you know, eh, no, it's not quite that there's easy. A, there's a little more to be done, a little more. Yeah. Uh, the, the other thing I appreciate is that Al-Anon was featured in it. Uh, I, and I, I got the message. I'm not sure the average person would understand exactly what the message was. Do you? And uh, the, the Al-Anon piece it's sort of towards the end of the film? Yeah, you know what it was? I mean, I was... I was not the kind of person that ever could imagine myself in any kind of a, you know, a meeting, certainly a 12 step meeting, something I envisioned as, you know, a lot of whining and people, you know, in the church basement drinking bad coffee or something like that. And I, um, I was just not, you know, I just couldn't imagine myself going into a program like that. And of course, once Nick became addicted, a lot of people said that I should go and Karen, you know, my wife and I should go. Uh, and it got so bad at one point that I was desperate for any relief, and so I ended up going. And as soon as I did, I realized that it was exactly where I needed to be, yeah. because there were other people who, first of all, you know, who were there and, and they understood. Um, but the other thing is, these people had been suffering through this a long time, and so there was a lot of guidance. It was support, but also advice. You know, if I said I was, if I talked about something I was suffering, people would say, you know, I've been there too, and. Maybe you got to think about it a little bit differently, and it was really, really helpful. Yeah, I, I always tell people that that because the disease of, infects everybody around the individual with addiction, it it uses the in, the individual with the addiction. Every strength they had have gets used to service the disease. So their intellect, their emotional system, their drive system, their wiliness, their relationships, their loved ones get sucked in. I, I always tell people the little the, the plant in the little shop of horror is the perfect model for addiction. If you, you said if, it. Oh, if, man. You, if you go near the plant, you go in. But if you have yeah. somebody there holding you out, you can stay out of the plant, but you cannot not go in on your own. And even as a, even as a caretaker, as a physician, I have to have somebody in the room with me who to yeah. occasionally kick me in the chair if I start going into the plant. And it, it, it's an interpersonal disease, and it takes all those strengths. So every great instinct you have as a parent gets used to serve the disease. So yeah. everything you think is necessarily wrong. So you have to yeah, have some. It's, it's true. And it really is. I mean, it's such a baffling thing for. You know, I describe it as being addicted. I got addicted to my son's addiction. And so all of the behaviors around, not quite all of them. I wasn't, you know, going out, as I said, scoring drugs in the middle of the night. I wasn't stealing from people. But in terms of the emotional debilitation, the confusion, the sort of, you know, blind um, blindness. Um, and also there is a really hard one here because, you know, we are, as parents, some of what happens in this with this disease is makes us rethink everything we know and everything we're feeling because of course as parents all we want to do is save our kids we want to protect them yeah and you know if they had another disease it's hard but it would be pretty straightforward you know you want to be involved as much as you can if your child has cancer you want to get them help but also you're not going to have someone who's resisting that because the part of addiction you know, this is your world, your your yeah. life. Well, but, I mean, you're the expert, but, but and you know this of, so speaking, well. But yeah, the part keep of going. the 
what, what the part of us that would tell us that, yes, we're sick and I need help, uh, is the part that's affected by the drugs and by addiction. So, you know, we're dealing with this really crazy, crazy situation that makes us crazy and we do need help. Yeah. And, and when you get better, this is the thing I also tell parents is if you start getting better in terms of taking care of yourself, and like we say, you put the oxygen mask on yourself before you put the oxygen on somebody else if the plane loses, loses pressure. Same thing is true, though, of addiction. But you also dance differently. The dance, you come, you get off the dance floor. You don't dance with them when you're in Al-Anon. You, yeah. you, and the dance, the addict counts on as a way to allow them to keep using. So you're yeah. in a dance that they're using to maintain their disease, and you just have to get off the dance floor. Yeah, it's true, and you know, and it's so hard, which is yeah. why we do need that kind of support. Right. You can't do it like no way, no every way, other day or whatever it yeah. is in Al-Anon or family therapy, which was really helpful yeah. to me uh, because it is so hard. That pull, the worry, the fear—you know—it's and it's rational because you've got a child who's out there and could die. Yep. And so, you know, it's so hard. And that is, I believe, why we need help yeah, getting through I, I, it. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's so dangerous and, and so counterintuitive to do the things you need to do. The, yeah. When know, my son called me up some of the time, he was on the streets and he said, uh, you know, will you just give me some money so I can get someplace safe to stay for the night? So I'm sitting there thinking, you know, of course I don't want him on the street. I mean, how dangerous is that? How scary is it to imagine my child on the street, never mind the actual practical, realistic dangers? Uh, but, we, you know, somebody finally told me in an Al-Anon meeting, you know, giving somebody who's using drugs money is like giving someone who's suicidal a gun. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we learn, you know, we learn because it's not instinct. We just don't know. We just want to help them and, you know, and we're desperate. Yeah, and if you've never been there or not, you know, not paid attention because you thought it couldn't happen to me, boom, you're in very, very quickly. Yes. Hey, help me with something. Uh, you, you know, there just are not enough therapists and professionals on earth to meet the demands of addicts and families, let alone the time requirements that they have. I mean, there, there's just so much need for time uh, sometimes with the addicts just being sit on, sat on or just having somebody there for them. And same thing with the family. Uh, they, we just don't have literally not only not num- numerically not enough. They don't have enough hours to do it, uh, even yep. if there were a numerical. And we have this free service that's available in every community throughout America called 12-Step that for some reason has been under attack recently. And, and I don't – help me understand why that should be. Because, like, just take an addict. To, to get an addict well, I mean, you really have to sit on them around the clock for eh, two months. And, and Al-Anon – excuse me, and 12-Step has armies of people ready to do that selflessly. And, of course, professionals are needed to, you know, make sure the treatment goes properly. But we just, we just simply can't do it on our own. Why with a free service – you talk about – you know, and m- many people with addiction, as what a social worker a friend of mine said to me once, you know, people that are into drugs aren't into insurance. <laughs> and I, yeah, and, I, and again, point. it's a free service. There's now a, a Cochrane analysis that shows that it stands up to scientific scrutiny. It is evidence based as well as any other evidence based treatment, and it's free. Why is that under attack? I'll tell you, uh, at least according to my experience. And my experience mostly comes, I mean, part of it is our family's experience, but also. You know, I know that you, you know, you have, you, you hear from more people than I do. I mean, this is your life, um, as it is mine, but, but you have, you know, so much more reach. And so you hear the stories like I do, and you hear people desperate calling in for advice uh, and writing you. And, and I do too. And here's the problem. 
if it works for you, if it works for your child, you know, 12 steps are a godsend. And like you said, free every single night, 24 seven, you've got sponsors, you've got people who are there for you. The problem is, is that it doesn't work for everybody. It just doesn't. And a lot of the people who it doesn't work for are young people. So if you've got a kid who's you're forcing into going to Al-Anon, I mean, you're forcing them to go to AA or NA meetings uh, and they walk in there and they feel completely alienated. They feel like, you know, there's the last place they should be. They're teenagers. So, you know, part of the program is to say you're powerless. You know, no, teenagers don't feel powerless. You are have to turn your life over to a higher power. They don't necessarily want to turn their life over to anybody. No, so te- teenagers, I, if we're uh, telling them that well, it's let me, the let me, only Let me way. stop you and say I, I agree. Te- teenagers... Yep rarely respond to 12 step when, when they do they do like crazy but they rarely yeah, exactly exactly so, so the problem i was thinking me, more about adults than teenagers yeah but, well well the yeah. problem for me and the reason that i think that you know we have to the 12 steps were it for so many decades there were no other options uh so in a way if you went to the 12 step programs and it didn't work for you you were you know you you had to go there or else you know you were going to die or at least there was a good chance you were going to but there are other options now and so if i hear from people who write to me and say you know i or my child or my husband you know went to meetings over and over again for years and continued to relapse it just didn't work for them and they ended up hating it and they won't go back you know either we tell them two things we say all right, you're going to die. It's your fault. Oof. Go back to AA. <laughs> or we tell them there are other ways to get and stay clean. And there are. Yeah. Oh my God. You know, there's lots of things. But that's but, the point. But, but the I, only problem, I think the only way, to, the only reason that the whole 12 step world uh, should be criticized is the people in it who say it's the only way. And I think you agree with me there. Yeah. It's, oh no. That's I, the only I, problem. I consider, I can't consider everything adjunctive. And 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 not only that, we now have a whole new category of drug addicts, which I sort of call dependent non-addicts. In other yes. words, you, we have all these people strung out on opiates that would never have been addicted to anything had doctors not addicted them. And yeah, what do you tell? That? It's true. What yeah. do you so so? You know, that's the other thing is that you know we do have a way of thinking about drug addiction from all of our experience. But what you know, one of the reasons I feel, I guess it's some sort of survivor's guilt as a parent is uh, my son for 10 years used, you know, you name it, heroin, other opioids, um, you know, cocaine, a lot of methamphetamine combinations, as you know, we talked about before. I mean, and he's alive. But what about these parents? What do you tell them whose kids went out and I hear from them too, you know, they did pain pills once and it turned out that there was some, they got some fentanyl. Or they smoked even, you know, some marijuana that was laced with fentanyl. Or they were using maybe for a month or two, overdosed and died. I mean, you know, is there anything we could have been done for them? Uh, you know, yes, there yeah. were some things. But yeah. we, you know, for obviously no guarantees. It's not about guilt tripping anybody because people don't know and people don't have access. Like you said, there aren't enough addiction doctors and specialists. But, um, but you know, for those people you know, sending them to 12 step meetings. First of all, it's not ever going to happen. They're not going to go. Uh, they don't have that history that makes people desperate in the way that, you know, in right. The way that, that's right. But, but also, you know, there is not a 12 steps are for people who are addicted and those people are not necessarily even addicted. They're certainly not in the way that we usually think. They're of not, addiction. yeah, they're not addicts in the way we think of it necessarily. Right. 
Right. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And and so th- there needs to be real sophistication on, on the part of the treating professionals. But but to exclude certain things or whenever an ideology creeps into anything, it's never good for people. So yes, I, I, you're, you're right yes. because it becomes you know black and white. If you don't do it my way, yeah. And this is this is across the board. You know, I've you know I think that's true for people. Some people in the twelve step world, I think it's some two people in this world of psychiatry. Uh, you know, whatever it is. Um, you know, people are complicated. I love what this one addiction doctor at UCLA says. He says, you know, addiction is where science meets people. Um, You know, we've got to do the best we can with the research, with what we know, with what, you know, researchers have shown us, you know, a combination of whatever it is, 12 steps, various kinds of behavioral therapy, addiction medications, whatever it is. Yes, Yes. But also understand that everybody is different. Yeah. Oh, God, yes. I always said I was so grateful to be doing this work because I sat at the crossroads of everything. It's, yeah. addic- to do addiction properly, you have to understand addiction. You have to understand neurobiology. You have to understand psychology, family dynamics, interpersonal dynamics, affect regulation. I mean, yeah. everything. Social. You have to be a social worker. I mean, you just, everything just comes right in at this, at, a, at this point for the addict. And if yeah. you have one way of approaching it, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's actually yeah. ridiculous. But yeah. but I'm I, sure but, you feel this way too, and I, I you know I'll turn around and ask you this question because I just thought it was so beautiful when an addiction doctor told me that she actually had been a, a physician, uh, an internist for many many years, and and she saw so many of her patients becoming addicted and, and overdosing, and, and in some cases dying, and so she went back and became you know got her uh, studied addiction medicine, and mm-hmm. she became a doctor uh, who treated people with addiction, and she said that the difference was, you know, as a physician, if she was able to treat someone with another problem, refer them, whatever it was required, who had a heart problem, you know, had a kind of cancer, who had something else, uh, if you were successful, uh, it was incredibly gratifying. You got them back where they were. You got them healthy again. But she said as an addiction doctor, she said, if you were successful, you don't bring someone back to where they were. You give them an opportunity to have a life that they never even could have imagined oh, or so much that better. Is, and I'm is, sure that you experienced it's that. It's exactly why I got in the field, David. It's exactly why I got in. I, I, I Early in the, probably the mid-80s, I was doing a lot of detoxing. I knew nothing about addiction. And I saw young people who were dying go from really down and out drug addicts to these unbelievable people. I thought, there's nowhere else in medicine. Usually you go from sort of acutely ill to chronically ill, or maybe you're lucky right. and things resolve. But this is like from dying to better than you ever knew you could be. And I was like, oh, my God, what, what is that? What just happened? I want to find out about this. She's absolutely correct. So, that's, so interestingly, to me, that tells me that's somebody who understands full recovery, which most addiction medicine doctors don't, unfortunately. So she no, knows, you're right. She knows you're all absolutely the, right. Yeah. So she's seen I, – I listen, I had a, an addiction doctor on this program say to me, there's no such thing as recovery from opiate addiction. I was like, what? what? I said, have you ever seen an opiate addiction? And so I introduced them to Shelly and Bob and said, here are two recovering opiate addicts there. Right. And, you know, and, and if you had treated them the way you treat your opiate addicts, they'd be dead. They yeah. needed a different kind of treatment, and you need to understand what that is. Right. So you yeah, and the to... other piece of it is, a, you know, part of the reason, I guess, also is that if you get good treatment, and part of it is, um, you know, this whole spectrum and individual and everything we're already talking about is, you know, people who are addicted like my son was since he was, you know, whatever, 13, 14 years old. He started using when he was 11, became seriously addicted throughout his, basically his whole adolescence. You know, he didn't only need to figure out to get off drugs. He also needed to 
it finally he was finally able to be diagnosed as having you know these co-occurring problems he yeah. also turned out to have bipolar disorder and depression sure and so he finally was treated for those things and in addition to that as he himself talks about he missed you know development 15 yeah. to 25 years old when yeah. normally you would actually become an adult become yeah become mature become know how to take care of yourself know how to have relationships know how to fail you know succeed know how to get your heart broken you know how to work how to get a job how to fill out a resume so he said that you know he was starting over so part of the way we want to help people who become through who come through this is not only getting them off drugs and and uh giving them tools to stay off drugs but also to rebuild their lives and to become you know the people that they want to be and that we want for them well that piece has been missed for a long time and i've seen much more much more um lip service given to that in treatment programs in terms of vocational rehabilitation and other kinds of life skills, which you're absolutely mm-hmm. correct. I mean, many addicts don't know how to get a driver's license, fill out a checkbook. You know, they, they've never done any the usual activities of daily life. Yeah. And, and then we expect them, you know, we send them off and yeah, go to know, college. say, you know, <laughs> take, you know, do it now, you know, you're fine, go <laughs> yeah. forward. And of course then we're really setting people up for failure then, because if we send them out, Without those skills, without that support, without the emotional support and even the practical skills, uh, you know, the likelihood is their lives are going to go into a tailspin again. And and what they've learned up until then to function, to cope, to you know, deal with the stresses um, are drugs, alcohol. You know, they go out and they get high again. We're talking, of course, David Chef. You can follow him on Twitter at David underscore Chef, S-H-E-F-F. The book and the movie, Beautiful Boy. We're going to take a quick break. Be right back. Well, CBDs are everywhere, right? Everyone's talking about them. And it's a topic that I get asked about all the time. Bottom line on CBD, although there are way more claims made about them, the clinical evidence right now, it's not all that clear. But many people are using it and reporting great results, and they are very encouraging. So I want to first define exactly what I'm talking about here. CBD is cannabidiol, an extract from hemp. While you might associate with marijuana, CBD does not cause reinforcement. It is not the reinforcing component of hemp, but it is what's responsible for the calming or some of the relaxing effects that many people experience, not the high. Now about the products. There are a ton of them on the market today. For getting the vast array of the reported health benefits, it's important to be aware of what you're buying. I was recently introduced to a company called Select CBD, an Oregon-based company that focuses on high-quality ingredients and manufacturing standards, not the hype. Their CBD-based products are available in a wide range of formulations and flavors, each of which is described to you so you can make an informed decision without all those promises that are probably too good to be true. Like I said, the reported benefits of CBD by individuals using this are very compelling. I'm excited to see how things develop as the science catches up with this booming industry. As usual, the public is ahead of the science. I can't make explicit claims yet, but boy, the reports are pretty encouraging. So if you're ready to try CBD, I encourage you to check out Select CBD. To learn more, go to drdrew.com select. That's on my site, drdrew.com S-E-L-E-C-T. And for a limited time, you can save 25% at checkout with the code DRDREW, D-R-D-R-E-W. Again, drdrew.com select, and then the code D-R-D-R-E-W. All right, David, we are back. and. Um, I was thinking about the the well. Have you read the book Dreamland? Yes, because uh, to me, he you know Sam Canonius nailed that. I mean, he nailed exactly because I lived through that whole era and I saw it happening, and I and I just I I, I was I the whole time I felt like I was a. Uh, Standing in a, on a railroad track with a train coming on, and you know, saying the bridge is out, the bridge is out, and it just yep. kept happening and happening and happening. And I, many of my patients were were frankly killed at the hands of my 
peers because of the forces that were underway that, that Sam so so clearly elucidates in that book. Um, the other thing I was thinking about your son, and and he was he was really the you know he was a a trendsetter, let's say, because he was yep. one of the first to get into the horrible combination of opiate and meth. That that's now a very popular combo, but that is an extremely difficult co- combination to treat because it it fucks your brain. I mean, it just yeah. it makes yeah. you disconnected from reality, and I'm sure you yeah. saw lots of that. Yeah, in the movie, there's a scene where uh, I think Steve Carell, you know, me, whatever, is trying to figure out what's going on with his son, and so he goes to talk to somebody who's a yeah, you know an addiction that. researcher, yeah. Yeah. and um, a doctor says to him, you know, meth is the uh, methamphetamine is the uh, the worst drug, and you know, when I saw that in the movie, I thought, you know, it depends how you measure. I mean, in terms of what's killing most people, you know, it's not meth right now. It, it, it are the opioids, of course. Right. But in some way, in terms of the toxicity, you know, from what I do understand, you know, methamphetamine is pretty, pretty up there. You know, it's well, pretty it's, bad. It's, it's the, and, well, yes. And by the way, it creates chronic depression stuff like your poor son's dealing with. But, but, but it, it, it makes you so disconnected from reality and so paranoid that when you add the power of the opiate addiction to the disconnect of the meth, they, I, they just are almost un, impossible to treat. You can't land them. You can't get them anywhere. Yeah, and also, you know, it, it's, um, you know, the other thing I mentioned was that Nick became, um, finally, after all this, after 10 years of this, you know, only when he was in his mid-20s was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, Yeah, you know, and I, sometimes I look back and say, you know, I brought him into programs. Why didn't anybody figure that out? Well, part of the reason is because if you put a, if you have a kid on meth and heroin, you know, what's they're going to look like they do have bipolar disorder because yeah, they go a, through this crazy highs and these yeah, crazy lows and right. they're there's acting a, insane. There is a there is a when you look at the diagnostic manuals of the last ten years, at the bottom of they 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 sort of give you these diagnostic kinds of um, windows. And at the bottom of every page, at the end of the diagnosis, they will they, they say specifically, this holds true provided this individual is not on drugs, in not in withdrawal, or does not have a medical problem that could create these same symptoms in every case, it's meaning that you can't make a diagnosis if somebody is on drugs or in withdrawal. Now, the yeah. question then becomes, well, when can you then make the diagnosis? And that right. is a hotly debated to- topic. My opinion is, my opinion is, if generally speaking, if once they're through their withdrawal and they're off their drugs, they still look bipolar, they will benefit from treatment, even if they're not actually bipolar. You can deal with what the actual diagnosis is in six months, 12 months. In the meantime, they'll be benefited from treatment. Yeah, that makes, that makes good sense. And I think that, um, you know, that's another thing that's missing, you know, as, as, you know, from the treatment system now is just a recognition of that because, you know, I visited some programs. I was at Hazelden not too long ago and I visited their adolescent program and, you know, people, Say kids will tell me, you know, um, you know, marijuana. Uh, yeah, heroin's bad. I shouldn't do marijuana. Heroin. I shouldn't do meth. But marijuana is, you know, harmless. It's natural. It's fine. Well, I went to this program at Hazelden, and about ninety percent of the kids were in there only because of their addiction to marijuana. So, uh, yeah. you know, there is uh, that's that's one you know big fallacy there. Of course, that it's safe. But um, but when I talked to the doctor, the guy who runs the program there. Uh, I asked him about this. How many of these kids have other problems? You know, they're suffering depression, anxiety, whatever it is. You know, I think the national statistics, they tell us it's something like maybe 60%. He said, 
99% <laughs> is that these kids are all suffering from some of these other diseases. They've experienced some trauma. Yeah. They do have depression. They have anxiety disorder, whatever it is. And uh, we have to recognize that too, because again, get somebody off drugs, send them out into the world. Uh, they have depression and suddenly they are feeling that familiar depression that they were so you know, trying, you know, unsuccessfully, but trying to treat by getting high. Um, and, you know, it's no, shouldn't be a surprise to us that then they relapse. Yeah, trauma is sort of the final, well, the, a very common thread in, in, in severe addiction anyway. I always told people, if you had bad enough addiction, you need to see me. There was a 100% probability of childhood trauma. The, yeah. the, the question is, again, when to treat it, how to treat it. And, you know, and it's very hard to treat trauma if you're still, your brain is still recovering from uh, drugs yeah. and alcohol. Well, one of the things that I actually thought was interesting, and I know that, you know, this is um, exactly what you're talking about. And I'm sure, you know, I know you dealt with this all the time, but Nick went into a program that um, the last program he went to it was a treatment program. Uh, and this is after one of his many uh, overdoses. And this was one of them, maybe the most life-threatening one. He came the closest to dying you know we came the closest to losing him but he went into a program and they did have uh, a recognition there that so many of these kids and so many adults as well have experienced trauma and nick told me afterwards it was such an interesting thing he said he went into the trauma therapy doctor whoever it was a therapist and uh, the doctor said to him you know let's talk about some of the trauma you've experienced in your life and nick went into the automatic pilot because he was a pretty good student of rehab by then. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he said, oh, when I was a kid, my parents got divorced and it was really hard and all this other stuff happened. Um, and the doctor or the, the therapist said to him, um, you know, okay, let's, we'll get there. Let's first talk about the trauma of the last few years yeah. of shooting drugs into your vein with yeah. needles, living good. on the streets, yeah. getting robbed, you know, robbing people. I mean, let's talk about that trauma. Yeah. And it was a recognition that, um, yeah, you know, this lifestyle, you know, if you uh, lifestyle is probably not the right word, but you know, some people look at people who are addicted and they think that they're selfish and they're out there having oh, a good no. old time. Oh no. Uh, but they're not, you know, they're in hell. Yeah. They're traumatized. They don't, they're already, you know, we, we shame them often. They're already feeling incredible shame. Yep. Uh, and so that experience is traumatic. And I don't think people think about that. I never had until, you know, Nick told me that that therapist said that. Yeah. That's, that's very astute because, uh, it doesn't necessarily do anything at that stage to talk about childhood trauma, that's for sure. And and I, I hope they start incorporating, I'm not seeing programs do this quite yet, but uh, neurobiofeedback, things that are not so evocative, could really help sort of reprogram some of this stuff. There's all kinds of therapies out there right now. We have to get very creative in what we do and when we do it to help people with these, these yeah, conditions. Yeah, I agree. And it's still, you know, I guess the one good thing, I mean, there's no way to spin, you know, this current crisis uh, any way other than it's a nightmare it's just well it's getting better I, i'm seeing but, from on the, on the medical side i'm seeing massive improvement when the justice yeah. department started putting doctors in jail surprisingly they changed directions yeah and, exactly well, that's what i was going to say i said if there's any way to spin this nightmare into something positive it is that it's getting a different kind of attention you know to having addiction related issues on the front page of the newspapers yeah. getting it in the faces of politicians having families parents who've lost their kids all around the country you know, going to their local legislators and telling them, you know, they're asking the new presidential candidates to, you know, what is their, uh, you know, how are they going to deal with the drug problem, the opioid yeah. epidemic? And and no. it also, as you said, it's affecting medical schools. You know, I, there was a survey done that one of the organizations released recently that said that the average doctor going through medical school, 
think it's it was ridiculous. It was like two hours or something like that of addiction training. Yeah. That's shifting now. Yeah. You so have no you know, idea. there's there are reasons to be a little hopeful. Yes. Or maybe even a lot hopeful, but we realize unfortunately it's going to get you know it's going to be a while. Well, it's it's interesting because what what sort of really put the fuel behind this was they started throwing doctors in jail for not treating pain. That's what really got it going. And then they made pain the fifth vital sign and all that garbage. Uh, and then all the you know state regulatory organizations got into pushing pain treatment so aggressively. Now we're going the exact opposite way. Now we're putting doctors in jail for over-treating pain and scaring the crap out of everybody. And now they're giving two days of painkillers for you know abdominal surgeries. And so, right. so you're you're so, you're suggesting that that's a problem. We that's a problem as well. We've all gone too far again. Need. We've overshot again. It's crazy. But yeah. but uh, you know I'm I'm but but I'm delighted to see the real improvement and the finally finally the recognition that the opioids are not a good treatment for chronic pain. They are dangerous. You should not combine them with benzodiazepines. It's uncanny that that it took so many years. I mean, yeah. literally 20 years of me screaming about it. There, there's yeah, and my daughter comes home from, uh, this was you know not that long ago, she went in to have her wisdom teeth uh, pulled, and she came home with a prescription for 20 Vicodin refillable. Oof. So that we could have got forty Vicodin. That's a lot. Know, which uh, she ended up taking zero. If she you, took some Tylenol. Where was that? What state? Uh, pardon me. It was California. Really? Uh, yes. And um, you know, and, and what would happen in many circumstances is the kid that? gets that prescription and they oh, yeah. sell them, or or it just sits in the medicine cabinet until somebody steals it. Yeah. What, or they exactly. They take one. Well, who, that's who, it. Who, right. Who? When was yes. this? How long ago was that? Oh, Daisy's down. It was six years ago. Okay, yeah, no, you can't do that anymore. That that doesn't happen now at all. You just can't do it. The pharmacy will call you and go, you can have three pills, and that's it. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It's over. It's, right, it's over. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's over in California. Uh, but but again, to a point where the plastic surgeons are screaming that they can't do these outpatient procedures because people go right. home in pain and they can't get any opiates for them. Yeah, and yeah. I've got a friend who's a doctor, and his patients are very very old, mm. and some of them do need opioids. I mean, their problems sure. are so serious, and yeah. they cannot they you, they can barely get out of their house, and so he yeah. and he can't. The only way he can prescribe. Uh, is if they actually get to his office and, you know, it, it, you know what that's like. And so anyway, he said that it's actually hurting some of his patients. You know, there's some exciting stuff going on with Suboxone and chronic pain, too. I, I have a feeling that's going to be the great use of Suboxone, the great breakthrough with that drug. How interesting. Yeah. yeah I've, I've read In some fact, of that. Susan, we need to bring Dr. Bruce onto this program to talk. He's doing a lot of that and to talk about that issue. Suboxone. Suboxone and pain. Because, you know, chronic pain was sort of the the battlefield of all of this and what everyone didn't understand was that opioids short you know all the opioids other than suboxone create back pain create headache intensify the perception of pain and perpetuate the problem and uh right that's how my patients all died because i, I would take them off opiates their pain would you know they, they'd come in i've told this story many times when you t- when a chronic pain patient strong out opiates come in you got you well, you had you were obliged to put a pain scale because the government was up your butt about treating pain and the, um, you say, how, you know, what's your pain on a scale of 10? They'd always say 15, 20. They'd never say 10. It's never 10 out of 10. It's 15, <laughs> it's 20. That's right. Without exception. And I would do nothing but take them off the opiates. They'd have a pretty miserable withdrawal. And two weeks later, they would not discuss their pain unless prompted. And they'd always put it at between a four and a six. Always, without exception, on no painkillers. Just take off the opiates. So I saw that ugh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And, that, and that's why I knew we were in real trouble. There was, there was a video of me on Larry King the night that uh, 
Heath Ledger died, just going, you don't understand. You don't understand. This kid died of what all my patients die of now. This is coming. It's a tidal wave coming our way. And uh, eh, it came. It yeah, came. you were right. I yeah. guess it's one of those times that you wish you weren't right. Yeah, right, exactly. Now I'm chanting about our homeless situation and the infectious disease problems that are going to come our way. It's going to be, David, get, yep. control the fleas in your household, get your measles vaccine. That's all I'm telling you. And uh, oh, make sure you get tested for tuberculosis because there's going to be a summer from hell coming our way. But oh, God. it's far be it for me to speak up about these things. I know nothing. What do I know? Um but I just got my measles vaccine uh, two days ago. and uh, cause oh, God. I, Well, I guess, uh, okay, we haven't yet, but now you've got my, uh, that's what we're doing this week. Yeah, you're, I think you're in that zone where at least you want to document that I, I know I, I was inadequately immunized. From 57 to about 63, you're sort of inadequately, if you were born in that window. And 63 to about 80s, you want to, you want to document your immunity with a blood test. Yeah, so it's okay. something to do. I'm 63, so I'm right so there. You're in there. You got unless you had measles. Even then, you still would want to document your immunity because because yeah. if the if the viral loads in the community go up high enough, you really have to have, you have to sig- prove it. Yeah, you have to have significant immunity. Yeah, we've we've really been uh, done a service by the uh, anti-vaxxers. Oh boy, here it comes, and the, no one's going to suffer more than the homeless. Watch watch what happens. Ugh. Well, David, that's a whole other topic, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> listen. I want to thank you for joining me. It's always a privilege to talk to you. Uh, I feel the same way, Thank you for the movie. We enjoyed it thoroughly. And uh, I love the book, of course. I I must tell you, I've not read Clean. I've got to read that. Overcoming Addiction and Ending America's Greatest Tragedy. I will will delightfully dig into that. And um, anything else? And you know, the other one that Nick and I came out with a book for for middle schoolers um, uh, that's out, uh, which I think is – you know, it, it, it's from what I've heard from teachers who've used it in their classrooms, it sort of talks to kids in a way that they haven't been talked to before. And, you know, it's about giving a lot of information, but also, you know, trying to help get kids to ask for help with whatever they're struggling with, you know, right. if they're being bullied. If they're being... So anyway, so yeah, it's... Um, What's it called? You know, uh, it's called High, which is a bad title, but that's somehow, I'm not sure exactly how that happens. Your, your publisher. Yeah, it's for, it's for middle schoolers. And, um, <laughs> I don't know, it catches your attention. I, it doesn't, it's what's, what's inside that counts. Yeah, I guess so. That's yeah. right. And any publications coming up? Any writing you're doing or anything we should look for? Uh, you know, I, I yeah, I'm always doing stuff. I've got some articles coming out. I'm writing a thing about uh, that's actually related to prevention for kids, uh, you know, how we could do better. You know what? Uh, I'm working Would on a book you that's favor? completely different. I, I, I'm a little confused by the prevention world. Uh, help me – give me two minutes on that I, uh, because prevention to me is about mental health and about uh, access to mental health services, and about treating families if they're unhealthy. That's prevention to me. What, you're right. What, what That's, it. They... That's kind of what we're saying. Okay, all right. I mean, yeah, you know, it's a, you're 100% right, because we know, um, I mean, I, I know from my own experience, you know, never mind from my son, you know, from Nick's and so many other family stories, is that kids start using drugs. I mean, there's a whole climate, a culture, of course, and, and, um, you know, this peer pressure and all that stuff is real, but you know, this great survey that really sort of says everything that we want to know, I think is that um, they surveyed 7,000 kids, um, young high school kids about why they use drugs or why their friends use drugs. Uh, and then they surveyed their parents and asked the same question, you know, why do kids use drugs? The parents said what I would have said, you know, it's because they like the feeling it feels good. And because peer pressure, the kids said, Number one with, you know, way, way, way high on the list compared to everything else was stress. 
So, you know, whether that's stress, mental illness related, whether it's about right. so, you know, so pro- I, academic I, pressures. I just, I just put that under to feel better. Yes. To feel better. That, they, they can't yes. regulate and they need to feel better. And yes, that's, that's, a, that's a mental health issue as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And so that's prevention. I, I agree with you. I mean, you know, everything, I mean, if we were, if we knew what we were doing, we wouldn't be in this mess, right? I guess that's, well, that's a really interesting statement. If we knew what we were doing, I, I, I'm, I found I mean, my, in terms of pre- prevention, if we've been good at it for the last, well, no, know, but it, it's a bigger thing. I, I, I found myself recently diving into the history of mental health in America and particularly, you know, the, the addiction history and stuff. And, it, it, it's it's many more forces at work than what you and I could have possibly fought. <laughs> Let's true. put it that that's, way. That's big big forces, well-meaning people making horrible decisions, horrible yeah. decisions. Yeah, and, you're and, absolutely and, right. And and it's, it's sort of I, my my lecture series now. Some I, I'm preparing one right now, which is you know how do well-meaning people make such horrible choices and lead us into such catastrophes and then not be able to adjust or change direction along the way. That's, oh, you're so right. Yeah. And that, you know, that applies to way beyond the drug. Thing yeah, right yeah, well, it all oh kind of, to me, it all dovetails into homeless and mental health and addiction. It's all kind of pulling yep. together for me these days. So, yeah. All right, my friend, uh, a privilege. All right. Well, it's so nice to talk to you is, and uh, hopefully there, we'll actually get, run into each other in the same room. Are you still involved with Pasadena? Uh, that's where I live, but I'm all over town in Southern California. Yeah. No, no, I meant the, uh, the Pasadena recovery. No, no, no. I'm not, I'm not doing treatment right now. I'm not doing any treatment. Uh-huh. I'm doing just a lot of yeah, consulting I, and stuff. I actually heard that they were either sold or Yeah, I, I was actually never there. Uh, I, I, oh. I, I, I occasionally would fill in for the psychiatrist that was the medical director there, and then we put our whole team into one hallway when we film celebrity rehab so we use their staff and their policies and procedures and things but i ran the treatment center at los encinas hospital which is actually okay, a psychiatric okay. was yeah. just a full surface hospital right. and we were i was there for almost 30 years and um david is there a website or anything you want to refer people to uh yeah david chef at com david com. we'll look for that and uh again a privilege thank you i'll talk to you soon All right, that's about it for this episode of This Life. Thanks for listening and subscribing on your favorite platforms. Rate us five stars and tell a friend. Also, be sure to visit drdrew.com for the latest news. We'll tell you where you can find all of our health-related content, including the latest in-depth series, The History of Opium. You can now listen to it on the weekly Infusion podcast. We have some great and very interesting and appropriate interviews with key historical players in the history of opium. We're excited about our newest podcast, Dr. Drew After Dark, which has been described as a dark web reboot of Loveline. It's the hottest guest spot for all the most popular comedians. Beware, it is for a mature audience. It is kind of a reboot of Loveline. You can hear the episodes first in a podcast form Thursday. Then on Friday, you can watch all the video episodes when the YouTube page drops on the Your Mom's House YouTube channel. New episodes every week. Subscribe, tell a friend. Also on Doctor.com, you can find Swole Patrol, our health and fitness podcast with Mike Catherwood. If you want something a bit more refined that will expand your intellectual horizons, please subscribe to the Dr. Drew Podcast, where I feature a wide variety of very interesting and important guests. Get in-depth interviews there. Last but not least, me and Adam, Adam and Dr. Drew Show Podcast. It's a lot of fun, and we are still together, and you can get it five days a week. So go to DrDrew.com, please tell a friend, and we thank you for it. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.